Greetings and welcome to my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. This is your host, Gay Clemson, oral history author, storyteller, and lover of all things Algonquin Park. As you know, I've researched and written extensively over the last 20 years about the human history of Algonquin Park, which I'm really having a lot of fun sharing with you. But before I begin, I wanted to take a moment to thank all of you who are considering supporting my storytelling efforts by either becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron or buying some merch. Becoming a patron is really easy. Just click on the Become a Patron badge at the top of my Picks and Vids page on my Algonquin Park Heritage website. Or you can go to www.podbean.com and do the same thing. If you'd rather buy something for yourself or a fellow Algonquin Park lover with the Algonquin Defining Moments design, just click on the Gears and Gifts link at the top of the Picks and Vids page of my AlgonquinParkHeritage.website as well. When connected, just enter the Algonquin Defining Moments as a search term. You can then search for whatever interests you. There are over 30 items, including coffee cups, water bottles, tote bags, journals, phone cases, and amazingly, even COVID masks. In episode 27, I shared with you some of the highlights of the early history of Algonquin's interpretive programs. One person that I mentioned in passing was Howard Coney Bear, who was the key illustrator for many of the early Friends of Algonquin Park Nature publications. As I later found out, though Howard's interest in the natural world began as a child, whilst raised on a farm in southern Ontario, it was his work as a summer naturalist in Algonquin Park that led to the honing of his drawing skills and his major contribution as the illustrator for many of Algonquin Park's trail guides and other publications. His success there led to a career designing publications and exhibits for parks and museums across Western Canada. Please feel free to check out his website, howardconeybear.com, to see his portfolio of work. Being a mother of twins, one of his drawings of twin bear cubs that was used as a fundraiser for Ducks Unlimited in 2007 brought a knowing smile to my face as I imagined what kinds of trouble those two cubs were masterminding. Well, it turns out that Coney Bear isn't the only illustrator who cut his teeth illustrating Algonquin wildlife. I found another, Don Lloyd, who was, and unfortunately he died in 2013, I think the closest that Algonquin Park has come to creating a true Algonquin Park Renaissance man. Don wasn't just an Algonquin Park wildlife and landscape illustrator. He also turns out to have been a geography teacher, a receiver of a bachelor's, master's, and Ph.D. in geography, an author of two important Algonquin books, a board game designer, a children's book creator, as well as an avid Algonquin Park canoe tripper, birder, and woodcarver. Don was also a longtime Canoe Lake leaseholder, Algonquin Park Residents Association activist, and Friends of Algonquin Park board member in its early days. In 2011, he received their Director's Award that honors those who've made significant contributions towards the appreciation of Algonquin Park. I can't say that I knew Don well, but I was successful in collecting many, many stories from him over the years. I thought then that maybe the best way to introduce you to Don and hear some of his stories was to chat with his grandson, Matthew Tiverge who I'm excited to have joining me now. Welcome, Matthew. It's so exciting to have you with me on my podcast, Algonquin Defining Moments. And uh, as I think most listeners will know, I have spent the last couple of episodes, we've been talking about the interpretive programs. 
prior to that, we also had a couple of conversations or a couple of episodes about leaseholders. And so what's wonderful about talking to you is now I get to put those two things together in some very interesting ways. I thought maybe the best place to start would be if you could just introduce yourself, tell me a little bit about uh, what you're doing today and your connection to Dawn. So, well, first, thank you for having me. Um, I really enjoyed uh, listening to your podcasts and this kind of it wasn't something I was expecting to happen, but I'm really looking forward to this. Um, so I have been going to the park um, since I was a baby. Pretty sure there, there was physic. There's physical evidence of me being at the cottage. I think at three months old, and um, you know, went every summer, and then over the years, kind of just developed a, a love for it, particularly from my grandfather, um, and ended up working in the park for five years. Now, remind me again what you were doing when you were working in the park. So for two seasons, I worked as a museum technician. Uh, or um, UTEC is what we called it, at the visitor center. So I was working at the, the bookstore and the information desk for the Friends of Algonquin. And then I spent three years working as an outfitter at the Portage store on Canoe Lake. Ah, uh, that's right. And, and your mom, right, was Don, one of Don's daughters. Is correct. that correct? Yes. So what can you tell us about how your grandfather got to Canoe Lake in the first place? So I'm not 100% sure of the exact roots, but I suspect that it had to do with his father's connection to Taylor Staten, uh, the founder of the camps. Uh, my great-grandfather attended Camp Tuxis in 1920. Um, he actually took the photograph, the, the well-known photograph of Taylor Staten standing at the, the podium at Omic or maybe Texas at that point. Um, it's the one, you familiar with that photo? Mm, sort of, it's been, it's have, been a while, um, so I've seen that. It's in George Garland's Glimpses of Algonquin. Oh, that's right. Okay, I will look that up and yeah, add it to my it's website. In there. So, yeah, so he took that photo mm. um, and he took, um, yeah, so he went to Texas for one year and was involved in the YMCA. Um, and I think he actually I found a, a kind of a little a journal that my great grandfather wrote, and it appears that he was there in 1920 and 1921 uh, because there's a a journal entry talking about having dinner at the Little Wapameo with and a, a meal cooked by Mrs. Staten. Oh, fun. How fun. Okay, so your great-grandfather went to Texas, and then how did your grandfather get to Omic? Because he was there for a while, wasn't he? As a, as a um, Yeah, so I suspect that it was through that connection that my great-grandfather had with Taylor Staten. Um, originally, it was my great-uncle that went to Omic first, my grandfather's older brother. Uh, he attended it, started in 1940. Two, and I believe he would have been too old to be a camper, so he was just staff because he was 18 when he went. Um, and then my grandfather had started at Omic in 1945 as a camper. As a camper, ah, okay. Yeah. And then after that, he went on to be staff as well, didn't he? But not at Omic. So he was on as a camper at Omic for five years, from 45 to 49. 
and then on staff at Wapameo from a, a, there was one or two years in the early 50s where he wasn't there and then but he guided with the exception of one or two years uh, where he was working on his master's thesis I believe then he returned as staff um, in 1968 to guide uh, the Quetico long trip. Oh, 1968. Okay, so that's interesting. Or sorry, no, that may have been six. Sorry, that was 60, 66, not 68. 66, 66. He was a sorry. He was one of the first guides on Quetico in 1966. Uh, sec, uh, I think it was second guide. Second, second uh, guide. The okay. second year of Quetico. Yeah. The second year of Quetico. Interesting. Yeah. Now, as I think some of you know, my first year as a camper at Wapameo was in 1967, and Matthew's grandfather was what in those days we used to call a big WAP guide. Now, this expression was both a term of endearment and of awe. Now, I realize that this sidebar story in this day is likely completely politically incorrect, but for some of us, going on a canoe trip with a big WAP guide was somewhat of a defining moment in many of our lives, though likely for completely different reasons. This was because Camp Wapameo trip guides were greatly admired and put on a pedestal by most campers and perhaps even the counselor staff. They had their own domains in the middle of this girls' camp, the guide shack, where they'd hang out during the day when not on trip and lived at Pogo, which was a fortress behind Senior Island, where they slept, which was totally off-limits to all and pain of death the likely outcome if ever one was found there. I chatted the other week with Dale O'Hara, who was a camper and counselor about a decade before I was there, and I was amazed at how nearly identical our memories were. Both of us remembered WAP guides as being these gorgeously handsome, bare-chested, which I'm sure wasn't the reality, as it did rain frequently, and in August it was chilly when the wind blew in from the north, but we worshipped them as Adonis-like gods. In those days, each camp trip was composed of six campers, a WAP guide, a male Camp Amic counselor in training, or CIT as we called them, and our female counselor. Sometimes on the younger girls' trips, that were usually only overnight or two-day small trips to nearby lakes, where the portaging wasn't onerous, the CITs would be female. The male CITs weren't as memorable as the WAP guides, but the two together were there to protect us from the bears, the wolves, and any other creatures that were likely to appear out of the woods or on a campsite or while portaging. In addition to protecting us, their main job was to carry the usual 80-pound canoes, which I think is approximately 36 kilograms, over the portages, pitch the tents, collect the wood, and get the fire started first thing in the morning and at night. With two campers to each canoe, and some with no upper arm or shoulder strength, to paddle for long distances, sometimes their job was just to ensure that the trips got across the lakes, with the campers sometimes being just ballast. As campers, we had nothing but the greatest of respect for them, although I know that some of the counselors didn't share our enthusiasm. They seemed to magically know all of the great campsites, could read the weather, and knew when it was too dangerous to venture out on the lakes or to shoot rapids. I also never met or tripped with any who were unkind or lost their temper. 
In return, most campers would spend waking moments ensuring that their every need was met, or at least the ones that we were aware of in those days. We cooked their food and made sure that they were served first. We washed their dishes and probably their socks and made sure that they got the best spot to sit around the campfire after dinner and a clean spot lakeside to brush their teeth. Their perspectives were a little different as they admired and wanted to trip with those counselors who were really creative in their food selections, were great trip cooks, strong paddlers, and could carry a decent-sized axe pack, no matter what the weather or temperament of the campers. Some WAP guides and counselors went on to marry each other, and I know that for years my key boyfriend selection criteria as a young woman was canoe tripping capability. So for Don Lloyd to have spent so many years as a WAP guide and one of the first to lead the early 30-day trips to Quetico Park gives him a stature likely few of you would likely have an appreciation for. Having said all this, my tripping experience led me to learn and want to learn everything that they knew and do everything that a WAP guide could do. Now, of course, all those sentiments are history, as backcountry canoe tripping has dramatically changed. Today, Kevlar and even aluminum canoes are a third of the weight. The quality of the freeze-dried foods have improved remarkably. So cooking isn't so much of an issue, or at least good cooking isn't so much of an issue, and heavy canvas tents are a thing of the past. Leadership for most, if not all, camp trips these days are female. When, in the 70s, women were first allowed to carry canoes, I was one of the first in line to learn how. Same with chopping wood properly. The ability to start a fire in the pouring rain and single-handedly paddle a canoe across a windy lake in two-foot waves, which was a required test in order for me to attain my master's in canoeing, are skills that marked me as a true feminist in those days, and are just as important to me now as they were in my 30s. Anyway, back to our main story. When I was doing my research on all of the different leases, my notes tell me that it was about 1953 when your grandfather and his brother took out the lease uh, where your cottage is. Yeah, so my understanding was that it was my, so my grandfather took the one, the lease where the cottage was built in 1953, um, and that Doug, or that they both took one out to, took it out together, um, and they had it um, for a number of years. I had originally thought there was a plot beside it, that Doug never built on, but I think they both took it out in 1953 um, and then built the cabin, the front cabin, um, that 53-54. Now, my parents told me that they had gotten one of the last leases on the lake, which would have been 51-52 time frame. So that means that, that yours must have really been the last lease on the lake. Uh, do you think I, that any that had any influence as to you know why that specific site was chosen? Because for listeners who aren't aware, it's on this hilltop that's like not exactly e- easy to walk up, if at all. No. Um, so I was my mom told me once that there was two sites available. Um, the site where the cottage is today. And then the other one was on the, the west shore of the lake where the Lauriers are and oh. to the further south of the Lauriers. And I'm not 100% sure why he took a hilltop site over one right on the lake, uh, but 
from what I understood, those were the only two sites left. Right. Well, I suppose it may have had to do with privacy. Uh, yeah, it's you know, incredible. Yeah, it's incredibly private. Yeah, which is really really nice. So my understanding is that the original cabin was built by Frank Yantha, who was one of the workmen at Camp Wapamio, but that later your grandfather had Jack Coons build him an articulated tram so that it would be easier to transport goods and belongings up the steep hill to the ridge above. So we called it, a, we just called it the cart. Ah. That's um, what we called it. Yeah. That wasn't built until the late, late eighties, I believe. Oh, okay. It was a much, much later edition. Yeah. Ah. And, and again, it's a, it's like an art, uh, a cart that kind of sits on these wheels on a platform at the bottom of the hill, right? And then you you push yep. a button or something and and it gets it yeah. pulls it all the way up the hill. Yeah, so there's basically a winch at the top of the hill and with a steel cable collected that uh, connected to the cart and either going up or down. Um yeah, you'd press the button to go up or down. And is it now, was it only ever used for stuff or did you get to ride on it when you were a kid? When I was very young, uh I got to ride it. So I remember that. Um, but eventually, um, no one was allowed to ride it. There was a big, uh, there was a small uh, hand-painted sign that my grandfather put in there, painted with red lettering, do not ride cart. It was not a very safe thing, to put it mildly. If you looked at how, like, the cables were connected, and I mean, if the, if the clamps were to break, you would go flying down the rails and end up uh, on the dock or in the lake. In my lifetime, I remember it as just, you, for the most part, using it to carry uh, luggage and food and stuff back up, up, uh, up and down the hill. Up and down the hill. Wow, that's cool. <laughs> now, tell me a little bit about your grandfather's tripping experience. He had quite a bit of uh, extensive uh, tripping experience. Um, starting in when he went to Almec in 1945 and tripped for over, over 50 years, um, um, you know, into the late nineties, early two thousands, um, or early on would have been obviously at camp and then guiding. And then he eventually, uh, went with some colleagues from, uh, from school where he taught. And then a couple others uh, who eventually went on, uh, a guy, uh, a former staff member of the, the Portage store. Uh, he went on a couple of trips with my father and I know some of my aunts and uncles. So he pretty much tripped whenever he could. Wow. So for listeners who aren't aware, uh, one of Don's uh, amazing uh, Algonquin claim to fame is that he wrote this incredible book called Canoeing in Algonquin Park. Yeah, and not only does it take sort of each section and then describes various canoe routes, it also has this amazing set of, of illustrations and, and also of some specific landscapes of certain spots along the way. Can you tell us a little bit about how he got interested in art? Because he was a geography teacher, wasn't he? Uh, yeah, he was. So I suspect... Um, I've got a couple old early drawings and cards that he did, which were kind of um, more, I guess, you can tell they're early on um, in his kind of art 
career or whatever you call it, because uh, they're much less detailed. I think it just comes with experience um, and the more drawing he did. Uh, there are many artists in the family. Um, so I suspect that he inherited uh, a little bit of that, um, that uh, you know, the, that artistic ability. Um, and it grew from there into sketching and both paint, uh, a little bit of painting as well. So do you think he was, he had been collecting all of these, these different, you know, pictures of, of animals and birds and flowers and stuff over the years and then just put them together? Or do you think he did the book and then decided to paint from there? Some of them are from photographs he took um, and then did the sketch. Um, because I, I have actually recently found a couple of the original slides or photographs that the, um, the sketches were done on. So I know oh. at least that's how he did that. Mm -hmm. um, but then a lot of some of the other cards, so I actually have some here. Um, they're basically from, um, I don't know, they would have been from like field guides or whatever. And then he would have sketched that. Ah. So my grandmother gave these, yeah, because these uh, some of them have a couple of notes and stuff that he had written on. So I suspect that's how um, the wildlife ones were done for his book. Hmm. Uh, but the uh, all the landscape sketches would have been locations that he physically went to uh, and took photographs and did sketching. Mm -hmm. uh, there's actually a map in the book, doing all gone from the park, that shows you all of the locations in the park of the sketches. Oh, that's interesting. Uh, it's right that. It's right near the front of the book. Oh. And I think there's about 60 sketches or so in the book, and they're all over the park. Wow. Wow. I mean, I mean, it's, it's just mind-boggling to think that you'd actually been able to get to that many locations. But as you say, yeah. over the years. Yeah, that, and that's one thing. Like I knew he had paddled a significant amount of the park, but it wasn't until I found that map that I realized, like, how much of the park he had actually paddled. Wow. Any idea what, in, what got him interested in writing a book about all those experiences? Well, I think he had recently retired. And when he, he, it took him about four or five years to write the book. I know that. Started in the mid-90s, and it was published first in 2000. Um, but I think it kind of started as a retirement project. Uh, having retired, I think, in 1991, and um, it kind of grew, grew from there. Interesting, interesting. So another story that I need to share is how Don's Canoeing in Algonquin Park book was a major influencer to me in taking on the Bonfield-Dixon Portage back in 2009. I'd always thought that at over 50 years old that it was too big a challenge for me, but his description of the portage sold me on at least being willing to try. And for those unaware, the Bonfield-Dixon portage between Bonfield and Dixon Lakes is the longest in the park, over 5,300 meters. Here's what he wrote. Before the new portage was cut, the carry basically traced an old winter logging road for much of its course. The road followed the lowest available land, which was frozen in winter, but in places it was covered in water during the summer. The first time I did this carry was in July 1948. In places, I was knee-deep in water. The recut trail to the north of the old road is on higher land that is essentially flat. 
It's not that bad a carry, particularly if you don't have to double back. Starting at Dixon, there is a slow uphill climb for about 500 meters. Little remains of the logging building on the south side of the trail at this point, but watch for a very deep hole close to the south side of the trail. At one time, it might have been an old cold cellar or even a well. The old trail then bent to the left or the south down a grade to where the main lumber camp had been located. The current trail, which is well marked and trodden, goes straight ahead. At about the same point, a trail leads off at the right or north to join the cart trail, a more recent lumber road that goes directly to Apiango. The present portage quite clearly proceeds westward. There are no significant hills to worry about. The walk was frequently through large areas of aspen, signs of an old forest fire. Near the Bonfield end, there are several sections of boardwalk that are usually in good repair. There are several ways of making this carry bearable. Carry for 20 minutes and rest for 5 minutes. Camp at the Dixon end of the portage and carry your canoes over that afternoon, thereby eliminating doubling on the next day. Plan so that this portage comes near the end of your trip when your packs are light. And don't be afraid of it. At 60 plus years of age, I've carried a reasonable pack of say 35 to 40 pounds over it in about 70 minutes. Now there's a challenge that quite a few people can match. Go and do it. Well, taking Don's advice to heart, my son Taylor, who was 15 at the time, and my friend Allie decided to try. We attempted it on our next to last day, and since we had to double back, decided to break it up into three segments. Taylor would take the canoe and do the whole portage, which he did, amazingly, in 50 minutes. I would do the first half, come back for the second pack. Taylor would come back to pick up the first pack that I had dropped and would take it to the end. Of course, I totally underestimated how long it would take to go halfway, and was as surprised as heck to find that Taylor hadn't gotten back yet to pick up the first pack when I reached it. So our three segments ended up being more like six, and Dawn's 70 minutes ended up for me being close to three hours. However, we were eventually successful, and it is one of the highlights of my canoe tripping life. So I think it's time for another musical interlude, and again I have Ian Tamblin with his song Campfire Light. It's from his 2007 Superior Spirit and Light album. I like to sing, I love to dance I play the fool if I got the chance All around the campfire light All around the campfire light I got this out of tune, old guitar Not trying to be no star There's enough of them in a summer's night Oh, there's enough of them Summer's night Well, you can look to Venus You can look to Mars I will set my sights by the northern star And in the deep dark blue Come the northern lights Oh, and in the deep dark blue Come the northern lights
to sing when I paddle canoe Feeling not thinking if the strokes are true We're gonna get through to the other side out in the night the waves beat the shore You can hear them pounding, you can hear them roar Oh, roll me, rock me in my dreams You can roll me, rock me in my dreams So I like to sing, I love to dance I play the fool if I got the chance All around the campfire light All around Campfire light all round, all round, all round the campfire light. things that you're probably not aware of is that when I did the research for the first writing adventure that I had, which was the chronicling of the history of all of the leases on Canoe Lake, I was told by my neighbor, John Ridpath, who was one of your grandfather's good friends, that he played a major role in helping figure out how to protect the loons on Canoe Lake. It seems that in 1988, a group of interested leaseholders started a project to build a nesting site for loons on the lake. For many years, the loon population seemed to be decreasing, and this was believed to be because visitors would get too close and the birds would get frightened off their nests. This, of course, would leave the eggs open to predation. In addition, the varying water levels on Canoe Lake in the spring would frequently wash out the nests. In the old days, when the late Everett Farley, who I've talked about previously, tended to the dams, his careful watch kept things close to a natural state, and the problem was minimal, but not so in later years when the same close attention was not paid. The first Loon Nest project received funding in an experimental 6-foot by 8-foot raft with accompanying natural vegetation was built by John and Jeff Ridpath, Dan and Danny Gibson, Don Lloyd, Chuck Gray, and they launched it in Whiskey Jack Creek. A nesting pair found it and successfully hatched a baby loon. Since then, there's been a nesting pair there every year, though not always successfully. A few years later, another successful raft was launched on Bonita Lake. Since then, the Canoe Lake Leaseholding Association has been responsible for keeping track and managing all of those nests and, of course, repairing them in the spring. There are a number of pictures of both the prototypes and also their current version on my website. I also heard that he had been actively involved in making a board game. Uh, yeah, so the board game is called Algonquin Voyageurs. He was sick and tired of playing Snakes and Ladders, or the game, uh, that, and that's why he wanted to make the game, because uh, they would, uh, that was like the only game they would play on rainy days at a cottage with Snakes and Ladders. And as I'm sure you can attest to, rainy days could get probably pretty boring after a while when you're there for a summer. Uh, so that led him to creating Algonquin Voyagers, which is kind of more educational and uh, entertaining than simple snakes and ladders. That's right. Well, certainly the, the educational part would be pretty cool. Essentially the premise is you're taking a 
canoe trip through Algonquin Park. And to advance to different spots in the park, you've got to answer basically like these uh, natural history questions or some other stuff um, about, about the park. You have to, there's one section where you have to identify um, some flora and fauna and like to move on. And then those cards are worth points. Um, and you basically you go on a pick a route in the park and basically whatever that everyone goes on and whoever has the most number of points at the end based on the cards and questions i've answered would win how fun did, did you have you ever played it i've played it a couple of times yeah you know, it was uh it was interesting <laughs> this wasn't there just a recent posting about someone on the one of the algonquin park facebook page communities talking about it yeah, a couple of, about a month or so ago, somebody asked about, oh, does this game still exist? Um, and it was kind of funny. So, I, you know, I kind of talked about it, mentioned that, you know, my grandfather made it and just kind of some of the stories about playing and how the game was created, uh, why he created it, stuff like that. And you're and you said you're going to, you know, maybe update it now. Uh, that is uh, that's a plan that's in the works. That's ah. very, very early stages. When I was doing my research on treasuring Algonquin, and at that point, he was working on a book about the history of the McRae Lumber Company. Uh, do you have any insight as to how he got interested in that? I mean, that's a long intellectual jump from canoe tripping in the park to uh, wanting to you know, do the history of a lumber company. Uh, so I know that in the early 2000s, he um, was kind of looking for a project to work on. Um, and while he was still on the board of directors with the friends, um, Bob McRae was also on the board. And they started talking and he basically, Bob, I think, suggested to my grandfather, um, why don't you, you know, let's look at writing a history of the McRae Lumber Company. And um, so that was a lot of that was new to my grandfather, the world of blogging and whatnot. Um, and so that was published in 2005, 2006. Um, and that was a really, really interesting book um, to read. I read it for the first time about five years ago. Um, and it was really interesting as well. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I think it's still available in, well, both of them are both canoeing in Algonquin and that one are available in the Friends of Algonquin bookstore, right? Uh, yeah, so Canoeing Algonquin just underwent a reprint and a redesign and reprint. Um, oh. So it's now available. And uh, Algonquin Harvest, um, which that's the one about the McRae Lumber Company, that's been available continuously since 2006. Uh, and it's actually published by Bob McRae. Now, I also understand that he was in 2011 nominated and, and received the Friends of Algonquin's Director's Award. Did he actually sit on the board of directors of the Friends for a while, or was he just, you know, actively engaged in in Friends? Kind uh, of he was talk? on the board for many years. Um, the um, and when it was first established, and uh, so through the eighties. Um, and I also don't, he also designed the Friends logo. Oh, really? I did not know that. Yeah. Um, so that uh, and eventually. Uh, I know we had a stained glass um, kind of model of the logo that was made that was hanging up in the cottage. 
Hmm. Neat. Yeah, but he was heavily heavily involved in the Friends through the eighties and nineties, you know, for probably a good thirty years. So, what can you tell us about what he was like as a person? Ah, uh, hmm. Um, I know that's hard from a grandchild perspective. <laughs> well, I know he wasn't one to really beat around the bush. Put it that way. Yeah. He told you how it was, and was pretty uh, brutally honest. I remember, um, I think when I was in high school, I had written a paper, and I don't know what it, why I decided to send it to him to look at. And the comments that he came back with were, like, basically ripped it apart. Uh, oh yeah, it was the teacher and him. If I had handed that into his class, probably would have failed. Oh, he was. Uh, yeah, he told you, told you the way it was. Um, you never. Uh, you always knew where you stood with him. <laughs> put it that way. My most favorite description is one that well-known journalist and author Roy McGregor wrote about Don in his 2010 book on Tom Thompson called Northern Light, and I quote it here. It's a lovely August day on Canoe Lake. Though the day started out cool and brisk with the sun coming out, the clouds cleared and the wind died down. Don heads us down the lake at full throttle, the wind pushing back his beloved red floppy hat and sending ashes from his cigarette dangerously down onto the gray sweater he's wearing. But nothing catches fire. He keeps to the far shore and as far as possible from the traffic jams of day canoeists and camp sailors. A fellow cottager, he says, had recently marked his hundredth rescue on Canoe Lake, plucking a couple of hapless trippers out of the lake before they'd even reached the first portage. He shakes his head, having canoed this lake every summer since the end of the Second World War, when he first came to Taylorstatton camps. He has long ago ceased to be surprised by the entirely predictable results of inexperience. Did he, did, did you get an opportunity to, you know, to learn some camping skills from him or paddling skills or anything like that? Um, yeah, I definitely did. I've got some early pictures of me, um, you know, paddling as, as a kid, you know, three or four years old. Uh, one of my favorite photos, and one of the really the only photos I have um with him um is me I'm, I'm probably about three years old um and we're on the dock at the cottage and basically he's just kind of teach teaching me how to paddle um and the paddle he made um paddle he carved paddles as well for everyone really um, so yeah i actually have my my paddles a little too small uh this is mine here Wow. And did he do the painting on it as well? Yeah. And then uh, name on the back as well. Wow. So he did that for all of the pretty, all, I know at least all of my cousins have one, um, but he started much smaller. I have a small, a smaller paddle uh, with when he first started carving with my, with my name, birth date, and then a map of Canoe Lake drawn on the back of it. Um, and so he did that. Um, yeah, so obviously that paddle's a little too small for me to use. Um, but yeah, that was that's always a nice. That's a definitely one one thing that I treasure. Wow, wonderful keepsake for sure. 
So are there any other stories that you think would be fun to share for our listeners? Um, I remember him telling a couple um, that were always interesting. The one in particular that I remember him telling me about was that he was on a guiding a trip, would have been in the, the 50s um, with Wapameo. And he had told the girls, I think we're all at a portage or near a campsite and he could was looking up into the weather. Um, he's always pretty keen on keeping an eye on the weather. And he noticed that when the weather was changing quite quickly. Um, and all of a sudden he told all the girls, okay, put your packs down, get the tents out, set the tents up right now. And he wasn't, you know, and he was pretty straightforward about it. You know, you know no joking around. And just as they put up the last tent, uh, it started to absolutely pour with rain. And it rained for maybe five, 10 minutes and it stopped. Um, so then they packed up the tents and put everything in the canoe, left the tents out to dry uh, as the sun had now come out. And they were paddling by um, soaking wet canoeists for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> so he must have been able to uh, and, and, and t- or somehow see that the storm was coming. Yeah. Yeah, he was always very good with, you know, weather, geography, anything, anything like that. Now, did you go on any trips with him yourself as a young man? Uh, I never got the opportunity to go on a canoe trip with him. I did, um, I did plenty of day paddling and, and stuff like that, uh, but not never on an overnight trip. I remember, though, you telling me a few years ago that you, had, with a friend, had decided to recreate one of his most memorable trips down the Nipissing. Can you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, so uh, it would have been in the July of 2020. We did uh, a friend and I who worked at the Portage store. We did uh, we essentially recreated uh, the Nipissing River trip that my grandfather uh, did with his friend George Welsh in July of 1980. And the idea behind, so his trip, um, it happened, my mom and her two siblings and their mom and my grandmother um, were uh, in England for a few weeks. And he went on that trip uh, with George, kind of uh, George and him willing to take a a risk, my grandfather's uh, bad neck and back, uh, because he hadn't tripped in about 10 years because of the neck and back problems uh but they had a great time over four days on that trip um and then my friend and i decided uh, we were planning we were talking about it last winter kind of hey let's do a big canoe trip this summer see how things goes and i had mentioned to my friend you know hey just kind of in passing at first oh it's the wouldn't it be neat to do this same nipissing road trip that my grandfather did uh, it's the 40th anniversary and originally we kind of joked about it and as we got kind of closer and closer to the summer we realized it's like hey let's let's actually do this trip um so we researched the route and um we did yes we ended up doing the exact same route uh, over the same time and we actually missed the 40th anniversary only by two and a half weeks (laughs) wow and what was the experience like um, so we started at the, the Tim River access point. Um, then so the, fir- uh, the first day we paddled 
all the way to the Highview Ranger Cabin uh, on the, the Nipissing River. Uh, day two was all the way down the Nipissing River to High Falls. Um, and then from there, on the third day, we turned south going into um, uh, Robinson, Whiskey Jack, Ramona, and Burn Route, um, and then into Big Trout eventually and stayed on Big Trout on the third night. And then from Big Trout, we paddled back to the back to Canoe Lake in the Portage store. That was, I would say, my best, my favorite canoe trip that I've ever been on. Um, it was just kind of the, the environment was really neat to just be that deep into the interior. Uh, see very few people over uh, a decent amount of time. Uh, just, yeah, we had a great time. Oh, the other one I was just, when you're talking about him paddling and stuff, there was one, um, I had never really seen him actually like paddle um myself and i think we were at the cottage it would have been in 2010 uh so this point 2000 uh, or maybe 2011 so he was around 80 and he got in the uh chestnut canoe and he just went to go paddle around there's a little shoal marker or not even a shoal it's a stick that marks a tree sticking out of the bottom of the lake and he just hopped in the canoe and paddled around it, you know, and then came back, you know, maybe out for a couple of minutes. And I'd been watching him the whole time. And, um, and I remember when I realized when he came back to the dock, uh, he had switched sides that he was paddling on. And I'd been watching him the whole time and I didn't see him switch sides. <laughs> I was just, he was just that good of a paddler, wow. and even at that age. Wow. It just, uh, he made it look effortless. <laughs> well, it's like riding a bicycle. You never forget, I suspect. And... Yep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you so much for your willingness to spend time with us today. Uh, I, I had nothing but the greatest of admiration for your grandfather. And though I didn't know him well, um, I certainly was familiar with his potentially sometimes gruff side. So I know what you <laughs> Yeah. Uh, uh. Yeah, I've really, over the last couple of years, I've really enjoyed spending time in the park um, and getting to talk to people like yourself and others um, who knew him um, and tell stories that, you know, stories about him. Um, that was really interesting, uh, which was, and that was nice. One other Don Lloyd story that I need to share is the fact that as president of APRA, the Algonquin Park Residents Association, in the 1980s, Don was instrumental in helping convince the Ontario government to review the Algonquin Park leasing policy. In 1986, after significant political pressure, the Ontario government asked the Provincial Parks Council, a citizens' advisory committee that reported directly to the Minister of Natural Resources at the time, to review the leasing policy once again. 900 people attended various hearings and town meetings. 60 briefs and over 200 pieces of correspondence were received by the committee. Finally, in August 1986, the committee recommended that there be a change in policy to extend all park leases to 2017. In return, the ministry acquired the ability to charge market value rents, approve all building activities, 
based on a set of regulations that were to be designed to minimize leaseholder presence and impact on the lakes. They also agreed to allow leaseholders to sell their leases to folks who weren't part of their immediate family. So to close, I want to share a poem that a neighbor, Helen Gibson, wrote called The Ode to Don Lloyd. It went something like this. Time was running out and some leases had expired. We needed a new leader who truly was inspired. And as fate would have it, Don Lloyd came along. He stated the problem clearly. It's the government that's wrong. We need a man more liberal in sympathy with us. So away with the conservatives without too much fuss. Don covered every angle, our position to explain, and when all was decided, his work was not in vain. So let us drink a toast to Don, most famous of presidents, who has achieved the impossible to keep us in residence. As I think all of my listeners know, I had to sell my lease on Canoe Lake in October of 2020, as did Matthew's family as well. So it's important to me to recognize those contributions by Don Lloyd as well. As I mentioned in the beginning, Don Lloyd was one of the most amazing Algonquin Renaissance men. He was an author, wildlife illustrator, a scholar, a board game designer, as well as an avid Algonquin Park canoe tripper, birder, wood carver, longtime Canoe Lake leaseholder resident, and major contributor to the Friends of Algonquin. I hope you've enjoyed learning a little bit about him. As mentioned previously, if you're interested in supporting my Algonquin Defining Moments storytelling efforts, please consider becoming an Algonquin Defining Moments patron. And if you're interested in reading more about the Algonquin Park history, please check out the Friends of Algonquin Park bookstores, where you'll find a wide range of both natural history and human history books. Until next time, 